You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Hey, Jared, what's up? G'day, Drew. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. What's going on with uh, Decolonizing Sunday School this fall? Well, the name change must be official because Drew has said it on the podcast. Uh, We're partnering with the warehouse in South Africa to be studying Emmanuel Katangoli, his brilliant text, The Sacrifice of Africa, A Political Theology of Africa. So if people have a heart to decolonize their faith and be exposed to other texts. Dr. Kongoli's text is a great place to start. How about you, Drew, in in terms of um, what we're doing in Subversive Seminary, what's up next? Yeah, we're we're excited to announce our new book for Subversive Seminary. We're going to start in September with Watershed Discipleship, which was edited by our good friend, Shed Myers. We believe that our commitment to anti-racist and decolonizing discipleship must include and take seriously our ecological crisis. And so we'll be starting Tuesday, September 7th in the U.S. and September 8th in Western Australia. And so folks that are hoping to engage in whether it be decolonizing Sunday school or subversive seminary, they can apply. And we hope that we can join them in this journey this fall. All right. Well, I am excited for our guest today. It is Jay Denny Weaver. He's a professor emeritus of religion at Bluffton University in Ohio, where he taught in the religion department for 31 years. He has written more than a dozen books, as well as many chapters and articles in Anabaptist and systematic theology, with particular interest on issues of violence and social justice and atonement and Christological imagery. Alongside his well-known books, The Nonviolent Atonements and The Nonviolent God. His recent publications include God Without Violence, the second edition, which has a new chapter on nonviolent activism and editions on Black theology and the doctrine of discovery, and also Nonviolent Word, co-authored with Gerald Mast, uh, which has chapters on how and why white churches should listen to Black churches and on nonviolent activism. And he is a member of Madison Mennonite Church in Wisconsin. And so, Denny, um, good good seeing you again. Welcome to Inverse Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm I'm glad and honored to be here. I love seeing all these faces. Yeah, we have a great community here that's a part of our audience, and we're just excited that you can make some time to join us today. And, you know, um, it's been really neat for the community for those that are listening on the podcast um, that to know we had just finished your nonviolent atonement second edition um, and I know you have a, a book that you and Gerald's recently dropped right uh, the nonviolent word what, what's that really all about you want to say just a quick blurb on it, has, it has two parts there are three chats the first part has three chapters on 16th century Anabaptist writers or texts that, de- that demonstrate the, you know, the presence of a, of a dynamic word in their writings, a dynamic word that isn't contained by the traditional orthodoxy. And then there are three 
in part two, it has three chapters that apply that word, that Anabaptist word to the modern world. One of them is, is about the nature of the Bible. One of them is about nonviolent activism. And one of them is about potential conversation between black and white churches. Awesome. That, might, that book is smaller and might not be quite as dense as you found uh, nonviolent <laughs> atonement. Well, um, you're the only guest we've ever had, Denny, that has a mascot named after them. So um, in the same way that you became beloved at your college, I think uh, you've become beloved amongst us. So, so we're looking forward to this time together. Well, I'm. some people ask me how I feel about that mascot. I'm actually honored. <laughs> they, would, um, awesome. they thought enough of me. I mean, I, I didn't embarrass them when I was there. So when I was gone, they were willing to maintain my name. And so I just say, thank you. I enjoy it. Well, Danny, let, let's jump into um, some of your own personal story. We often talk at Inverse about um, how um, biography and theology is intertwined so much so that biography is often theology. Um, when do you first remember the gospel being articulated? Uh, was atonement um, explained as the gospel and, and what are those early memories of you of uh, those uh, initial articulations of, of what the gospel was? I don't, when I was young, I don't ever remember anybody talking about atonement as atonement. Hmm. We just knew that Jesus sacrificed for us. You know, that was just kind of the, the ethos. Jesus gave himself for me. Jesus died for me. And that was what the gospel meant. That was what accepting Jesus meant. It meant accepting Jesus' sacrifice for me. And and I don't. I, mean, I think as a young person, it didn't go much. It didn't go much beyond that. We never asked. You know, how does that relate to the rest of Jesus' story? You know, those we just that wasn't a question that we posed at that point. About you know, we we talked about Jesus' story. You know, I was supposed to be a Jesus boy. But we didn't connect that in any way to uh, what now we call atonement. Other, I mean, other early religious memories. I just remember a very early age that I, I knew I came from a peace church, that yeah. I didn't go to war. You know, I, mm. I have a vivid memory of in uh, kindergarten outside when we were rehearsing for our May, for our May Day program as kindergartners, talking to the little boy next to me who was Donnie that we didn't go to war and he said we did and i said no we, we don't have to and that was that would have been about 1947 i my parents hadn't talked i didn't know that a war had just concluded i just wow. knew that i had just picked up that i didn't go to war so that was part of my early church experience along with jesus gave himself for me but i didn't i didn't connect those two things we didn't connect yeah. those very well. That's really interesting, Denny, because so I'm curious, like when you're thinking about this kind of what it sounds like more broad, abstract way in which people are talking about Jesus died for you within your Mennonite circles. Um, how would you say, like, how is God being depicted and understood in the midst of all of that at that time? Like, is God understood as violent, retributive, peaceful, restorative? Like, what's your understanding that you think of, of well, how God I mean, was understood? I'm, I'm trying to, to, re, to uh, reproduce what, what 
by what we would have been, what we would have thought, yeah. you know, when I was was growing up. And I'm sure we we said, it's a loving God. He loved us so much. He gave his son to die for us. Yeah. And didn't, did not, you know, now that's a, strikes me as a kind of horrible, horrible statement. You know, a father who gives one son to die for the other sons, you know, that, that, that strikes me. I would not say that today, but that, that's the way we, we grew up. What a loving thing God gave Jesus to die for us. And I mean, I think that was just, that was just the given. Yeah. And you said, like, I mean, you mentioned that, so you're talking about like war and you didn't go to war, but you didn't necessarily connect it to the atonement piece. So like, how would like those early articulations around Jesus dying for you, like, how is that shaping and, and understandings of who God is? How's that shaping discipleship at that point? What would you say discipleship on the ground look like from Disciple, the Discipleship ground meant following the example of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it didn't, it, it, this is my memory. Now, I, yeah. you know, that's 70 year old memory. Um, it wasn't related very much to God, except we knew that God was loving because he gave Jesus to die. But we didn't, but uh, there was, there was probably some of the, you know, Jesus, Jesus submitted. And so we, you know, we were passive nonviolence. Yeah, non-resistance, passive, non-resistance. Right? So that, that, time, that yeah. was, uh, that was an element. Yeah. As yeah. well. And so, you know, I knew that I didn't fight and, uh, anybody hit me i would not hit back you know turn the other cheek so we had that passive understanding and that that was that was what we learned from jesus although i guess some conscientious objectors um turned the the non-resistance into something more active do you remember at all um uh those shifts um uh, particularly as were there people in your own congregation growing up that during whether it be um, the Vietnam War or Korean War or um, who refused to go, were there conscientious objectors that helped shape some of this thinking for you? Um, I was away from my home congregation by then. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, graduated from college and I still had that when I graduated from Goshen College in 1961, I still had most of that non-resistant idea. And I did two years in seminary, yeah, two years in seminary. And we, and it was a Vietnam era. And I had a a college, I mean, I had a draft deferment as a seminary student, but we wanted to, I wanted to do something. And so we volunteered with Mennonite Central Committee. Mm. And uh, we did a year of French study and we went to Algeria. Mm-hmm. We there, um, 66 to 68. Wow. And that was just three years after the, their complete independence from France, after mm-hmm. they'd had their, their bitter war, seven year war. And independence was still very new and very thrilling to those folks. And they were free to talk about their war. And we beat the French and we won. And they would tell me stories about. Um, how terrible the French had done and how they lined up dead gorillas on the along a wall with a sign that said I won't throw any more gorilla uh, grenades and that was the that was it was that experience 
hearing those people in Algeria that it, it dawned on me, non-resistance to these folks is meaningless. Hmm. There's no witness, it was no Christian, no valid Christian, no viable Christian witness at all to say, oh, Jesus tells us to submit to anything. And that was when I, you know, just, you know, and I don't know how, you know, what kind of a space, if it was a year or a month or a week, I don't know. I just decided if nonviolence means anything, it has to be active. It has to be yeah. some kind of nonviolent resistance. And so it was that experience where I, where I made a shift. And I, I you know, I developed it and pushed it further. But, that, but it, that was my experience that turned me around on that particular issue. Yeah, that's just fascinating. To, to stay on this point just a little bit further, because I've one of from my readings, um, one of the things that I've taken away, and I'm curious if you think this is true or not, that in the Mennonite community, along with what was going on in Vietnam, um, to help shift from non-resistance to active peacemaking, that another element was Vincent Harding internally and MLK externally mm -hmm. outside the Mennonite community that is helping Mennonites think through active peacemaking as well. Would you would you say that that was a reality that folks were wrestling with and grappling with at that time? As yeah, um, I mean, younger people. I one of one of the intermediate steps was with from Guy Hirschberger. Yeah, and Guy Hirschberger, right? On, you know, he right. had a, uh, the way of the cross in human relations. Right. And that was uh, that was that wasn't yet active nonviolence, but he but he was talking about it's more than peace is more non pacifism is more than just non-resistance. It's an active it's a positive witness. It's you know, so he still wasn't you know demonstrating he wasn't doing nonviolent activism, but he but he but it was very much an a, a visible manifestation of something rather than just passive. Not re not responding, and so, and and guy was guy was was very much influenced by uh, both both the people that you talked about, I mean, yeah, Vincent Harding and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. So that you no, know, that was definitely part of the conversation. Denny, um, how would you now articulate how Jesus delivers or or saves or or liberates, um, uh, compared to the, the the preaching that by osmosis you. Uh, absorbed as a child, um, what what do you hope that um, kids are now absorbing um, via osmosis, um, given your theological project? Well, I I understand the the role of Jesus as making the reign of God visible, and mm. so his you know he announced himself in the, the synagogue that he was going to you know the blind will see and the oppressed will be freed and you know poor people will have something, whatever. And so you can see his life as acting out those, those actions. Uh, and there's more. I mean, he, the way he welcomed Samaritans, the way he uh, treated Samaritans, you know, uh, you could say modern language, you know, confronting racism and raising the status of women, and the way he confronted uh, ill-gotten gain with Lazarus, uh, not Lazarus, uh, Zacchaeus. Uh, so Jesus, Jesus' life was a confrontation of, of injustice and a making the kingdom of God visible in terms of injustice. He did that, and it made the forces of evil so, so mad that they killed him, and God raised him. And I think, I think the, the resurrection, however we want to understand resurrection, that's the real clue, that's the real proof 
that that's that God's in that story, that that's God's story, that Jesus is God's person on earth that makes the reign of God visible. And so to me, salvation is, well, the, resurrect, the resurrection is an invitation to join the reign of God that Jesus made visible. So Jesus is our savior in terms of showing the way that we are invited into to, uh, to share with him. Now, I, I can hear some people saying, well, that's a little bit vague. But I, I don't think that's any vaguer and any more difficult to believe than the idea that God has some big uh, rule, some big uh, debt book in the sky, and He's checking off people that you know, that accepted a violent death paid to God. To me, that you know, that that kind of a story doesn't make a lot of sense either. So I, you know, I, I make no apology for the the way I laid it out. Good. So I'm curious, like. And maybe I maybe not that curious because I think I know exactly what you're going to say, um, but but where do you start in articulating a nonviolent atonement? Like, what's your beginning points? And I'm thinking about like, what are the sources that get you to articulating um, what you believe? It's it sounds very simplistic. The 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 uh, real the real beginning point is the New Testament narrative of Jesus. You just tell that story and see how Jesus confronted evil and so i mean I, I i when i laid out you know how i what i was saying a minute ago I, I was i was laying out that beginning point now when i lay that out and i go read um gustav alain's christus victor and see these images of atonement that's when i say oh i can take what i with a modification i can fit what i just described about jesus into one of those models. It fits a Christus Victor model, except it's not, you know, demons fighting in the sky. It's real life struggles on earth. So I, you know, I ended up calling it uh, narrative Christus Victor. Um, I, and I, then I, I uh, when I got to that and I read Revelation eventually when I was coming from another direction, how to understand Revelation in terms of the first century uh, emperors and the church and that confrontation, it dawned on me, whoa, Revelation is all full of examples of this same confrontation between the church on earth led by Jesus and the force of evil represented by the Roman Empire. So I say, Christus Victor, was the was the example for the pre-Constantinian church the same the same church as a community that Anabaptists said they uh, believed in, and so that's that's where I sat and I thought I'd figure that out very neatly for Mennonites, and two other books well there's several books, but the one that just absolutely blew my mind was James Cone's God of the Oppressed, yeah. and when I read when I read that book. And he had given the same critique of the Nicene Creed and those classic formulas that I did, except where I had said, well, they allow, they allow us Mennonites to, to uh, confess Jesus and accept the sword. And I don't think that's right. Cone said it allowed white people to accept, to accept Jesus and promote slavery. And then he, and he had the same critique of of uh, Anselmian atonement that I did, except he said, 
where Jim, Danny, he said it was it allowed uh, in, uh, led people to submit to slavery. And I was just talking about submitting to uh, unjust suffering. But it was the same critique and his answer was also a Christus Victor image. And I, that, I, at first, I read that several times. I wasn't even sure I believed it. And I finally, to really convince myself, I, yes, I had understand it. I actually found James Cone at an American Academy of Religion meeting. I called him out of a meeting and he said, he didn't know who I was from anybody. He said, I'll give you five minutes. And I real quick explained, well, you know, I have these parallels. You think that's valid? He said, oh, sure. Except you're not saying anything we, we in the black community don't already know. <laughs> and I said, well, maybe there isn't anything for me to write then. And he said, oh, no. He looked at my name tag. Oh, no, Professor Weaver. You go tell the white folks. You're one of the few white folks who knows. <laughs> so okay. I just kept on trucking. And I learned, I learned from, you know, I could add what I learned from feminists and womanists. And then most recently, Jay Cameron Carter, who ran mm. that, the, the existence of racism right back to that early, you know, Nicene Creed. And I just thought, wow, this, so that, so that is Cone and Carter are two of the most important to me, theological theological writings after I've told the story of Jesus in the New Testament. Yeah, wow. Uh, I'm really interested. Uh, I know that you're not in the classroom uh, on a regular basis anymore, but um, as your work was received, um, and particularly from students, what were the kind of objections from the scriptures that really caused people to stumble? Like, what were the particular passages that on a repeated basis, you just had people bring to you? Um, what are those passages that you just got sick of hearing in in that particular way? <laughs> well, the, I mean, I, I could speak generally. One is violence in the Old Testament. Mm. Continually, well, what the Bible says, and they got their finger on, a, on one story, and there, there are many of them. They got, they got those stories. And so how do you, well, if you want to, because I, I would come from, I finally came to the conclusion I, st I stated it at the end of um, nonviolent atonement without spelling it out that it was a non that implied a nonviolent God. Right. And I finally decided that I had to go farther than that. I had to make I had to make that explicit. So I did nonviolent God, that that book. So the what but I would still what this would come up in class and with, you know, if I'd go give a lecture somewhere, you know. Somebody's always saying, oh, but what about? And then you get a, a violent text in the Old Testament. And uh, there I would, my, my argument is, well, you got a conversation. There, there is also, you can line up a bunch of nonviolent texts of various kinds uh, of one kind and another. And so you have a conversation and which, which of those sides of the conversation is true. And if all you know is that those Old Testament stories, you don't really know which one is the, better story. But when you understand that Jesus is the continuation of that story, it becomes obvious which is the um, better story. Now, people have said, well, when you do that, Danny, you're just throwing away a big chunk of the Old Testament. And I say, no, I'm not. I need the whole thing to even know there's a conversation. And knowing that conversation 
helps us understand the significance of Jesus. So I, you know, you look at the Bible as a whole, but I, you know, quick would never carry it just a New Testament like some people do, because you need that whole, you need that whole story to understand what, what's significant about Jesus. The other kind of text that um, bugs me is uh, when they put verse, uh, hands on uh, point to verses in Paul about sacrifice or Jesus' death for me or whatever. And I am not a Paul scholar. I'm not a New Testament scholar in that sense. And there I uh, do what I, to me, is a punt. I refer to David Brondos, who I quoted liberally in the uh, revised version of Nonviolent Atonement. And I, and I didn't uh, initiate that. David Brondos came to me at American Academy of Religion and stopped me and said, uh, I've been reading what you've been writing. I think you should read my book. I think it's, it uh, is compatible with what you're doing. And I went home and read his book and said, wow, yes. And so I, so anytime somebody starts quoting Paul at me, I said, well, go read David Brondos. <laughs> <laughs> he he explains how he explains in much more detail than I ever can how to deal with Paul and and what context to put very specific verses in. It's interesting, Danny, because you know I know for a lot of our community, you know, it's wrestling with scripture is actually a really important right um, yeah. area and and thinking through like how to engage. Um, the different texts throughout uh, the Hebrew scriptures is something that people are still, I think, working through. And it's interesting, like, what to your point in terms of the conversation that's happening in the Old Testament um, that we find, what is always fascinating that I always bring up, even with my own students, is, uh, is that it's fascinating that since after, you know, the destruction of the temple, Second Temple Judaism, like, the Jewish community has been much more peacemaking than Western Christianity has been, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, working with, without even having the revelation of Jesus Christ, um, that witness has been there and much more significant so than in Western Christianity, not to say that they would call themselves pacifist in that kind of way, but, but I think that it's been certainly a much more evident ethic in that community um, since then. And so um, the idea that, that the Old Testament itself just leads towards violence, I think is a projection um, of Western eyes that are already right. bent towards violence and looking to justify it and only picking out those texts and ignoring so many other texts that are yeah. inviting us towards God Shalom. No, I've heard, I've heard more than one Jewish scholar say, um, look at Genesis 1, which says people are created in the image of God and we have no business killing what's in God's image. So when you, I mean, I, I start there and I start with a nonviolent, I can show, I show a nonviolent creation, the way creation is nonviolence. I say the Bible started with a nonviolent God and it's a, uh, it's a departure to get into the violence. And then with Jesus, we're kind of uh, bringing it back. So Denny, um, another can, question. Can I, let, me, let me say, yeah, excuse, yeah, yeah, yeah me go say ahead, go ahead. One, one more theoretical argument. When somebody gets too assistant, insistent about with their finger on a particular verse that supposedly upsets everything I've said, I, I start saying, well, are you a Christian or are you a Biblian? Because if, 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 a, 
if an Old Testament text overturns what G, the, the example of Jesus, who the last time we looked did not use violence, they're actually saying that, that that text is a higher authority than Jesus is. Now that's a little bit of a theoretical argument, but I but I also believe that that we're not, that the, the the Bible is a witness and contains that story, but it's the but it's Jesus who is our final or is our, our authority, our, our anchor. And so we don't, I, I, I refuse to accept the quotation of the Bible against that story, against Jesus. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's good, that's good. Um, again, I kind of already know, I think, where you'll how you'll answer this, but we've asked all our guests in the series, you know, when, when we think about, you know, all the theologies that are out there, and certainly, um, that's certainly the case right now. It's so evident for even more folks than normal that there are so many Christian theologies that are justifying and accommodating uh, domination, white supremacy, patriarchy, colonization, cycles of violence. Um, where do you start in challenging these theologies that, that bolster these realities? I think I, you know, I just start telling that story of Jesus again. Where do you get off you know, with white supremacy, with what Jesus said to Samaritans. You know, how do you how do you get off on killing when what G, with the example that Jesus set? You know, he, he, well, the, um, John Dominic Crossan said the ultimate, and he's he's really into the story, not quoting the text, but the story. When Jesus told Pilate, uh, "My kingdom is not from here." You know, meaning, you know, his his identity comes from uh, the reign of God. It's, so it's different. It's a different identity. But the fact that uh, there was no uprising after Jesus' death shows he hadn't been programming his folks to engage in a uh, rebellion. But I go back to the, uh, the Walter Wink understanding of the turn the other cheek and, and um, go the second mile and uh, cloak with the coat. Those are nonviolent resistance texts that change the situation and give people a chance to repent. And so I, and you know, I just, and you talk about, you know, Jesus uh, healings and uh, forgiveness. And I just say, how, how can you be defending violence? How can you be defending white supremacy? How can you be defending national, white nationalism with this story? I mean, I, I don't know how to get. I don't know how to get beyond that. I mean, yeah. those, those folks aren't going to pay attention to J. Cameron Carter. They're not going to read a book by a feminist. So I say, okay, you say you're Christian. I say I'm a Christian too. Good. That gives us a framework. Now, when I see when I read Jesus, it looks like this. How do you get off doing that, Denny? I wanted to ask: um, Are there particular pushbacks? I, I think of. Um, after reading your book initially with the first edition, uh, Christopher Marshall, who's a um, scholar from Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, who's done phenomenal uh, work in restorative justice in, in prisons, and that's how I initially um, connected with um, his work. Um, he had a, a very nuanced um, response that I don't know if you remember at all. It's, it's yeah. so many years ago. Um, but are there responses um, uh, to your project um, that do nuance it that um, uh, you've really 
appreciated and um, has that, uh, I kind of suspected in the second edition, there might be some more of um, those voices. How, how is that adapted? And I guess for, for, for Chris, um, his biggest pushback was um, there is a sense, and he is the example of Emmaus Road and the depiction in Luke of the um, uh, resurrected Jesus actually explaining um, to the disciples um, the necessity of his suffering um, uh, on the road, uh, not in a way that um, uh, backs up some punitive bloodlust of a deity, uh, but instead as um, an, an outworking of God, not uh, willing to participate in violence or um, uh, stop injustice by further injustice. Um, what, are you, what are your responses to whether it's uh, Chris's or other kind of um, critiques of the nonviolent atonement? Well, I have to say that that, that that point that he raised is probably for me the most difficult point mm. that um, to what extent do we have to say, do we need to say that God willed the death of Jesus? And I'm not willing to say, and, and this, this, is where, this is where people push, some people have pushed the hardest. I'm not willing to say that it was necessary in order to have a resurrection, for example. I am willing to say that well, let me say, Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't live in order to get himself killed. That's right. He did not live in order to get himself killed. Getting killed was a byproduct of the life that he lived. And therefore, I mean, I, I, and it was necessary in, in the sense that if he had decided to fight, if he had abandoned his thing, then the mission would have failed. And so in order to carry out his mission, he had to go through that suffering. But the suffering was not the purpose or the, that he came for. Mm. And so I, I'm willing to say it was necessary as a, as a byproduct. You know, I, you know some, some of you remember, I think it was uh, Tom Fox who went to uh, Iraq with uh, CPT. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, he didn't, he didn't go over there to get killed. Right. But it was a byproduct of the witness that he was carrying out. Yeah. And so I say, you know, it wasn't, it was, that wasn't a necessary, it wasn't a necessary death, excuse me, for some ultimate purpose. But I admit that that's, that's not, a, for some people that won't be a strong enough answer. But I, you know, I won't say that Jesus had to die because God needed it. And, and Chris would be, um, uh, you know, he's totally down with your project. Like he, he um, deeply appreciates um, your work. Uh, but as a, a New Testament scholar, he, he's seeking to um, uh, not sidestep texts that don't fit um, what, uh, like he, he's expressed to me personally years ago that he, he wished um, that it was easier just to say yes to because the project itself feels so much like Jesus um, because of the emphasis that you put on the life of um, uh, Jesus. Uh, so it, it's not him uh, seeking to hold on to a th theological project that provides a justification for violence, but rather how to do justice to these particular texts. And Drew and I, in um, facilitating the study of your book, we uh, I use the example of 
um, the, the young person in front of the tanks in Tiananmen Square and what the night before that action must be like. And let, let's pretend um, that uh, this young person had a commitment to this, the story of Jesus. And what would the prayer life look like for this young person before going before those tanks? And how do we talk about God's will um, uh, in relation to what it is to be free of the will of uh, principalities and powers that, that seek to narrate our lives in ways that do um, uh, feed on and perpetuate violence, oppression, injustice, um, evil and death. Um, and would that young student activist actually say, no, in some sense that there is um, the, the desire of the divine is for me to confront it even to the point that I might lose my life and use the example of Tom Fox to put it in a, um, and that's quite, that's a very different kind of, well, as your work has gone uh, in an activist direction, when these texts are considering um, lives of um, confrontational nonviolence, we ask different questions um, rather than lives of um, uh, passive refusal uh, or uh, passive acceptance of violence. Would you talk to us a little bit about um, uh, where you've gone in terms of? Just, I just say I, I wouldn't argue. I mean, I don't. I don't say that Chris is wrong. I just say you know we're we're I, we're very close. So I yeah, yeah and, and I like I like what you just said. Okay, go ahead. I was just going to say um uh, I know that you've uh, done some more work around um, nonviolent activism, uh, writing explicitly. Um, in, in your scholarship. Would you talk to us about how um, your later work relates to what you've built on in the nonviolent atonement? I, I, I see it as a, uh, a, a further step, you know, nonviolent, out of nonviolent atonement. I, you know, I ended up saying, well, this is really about activism. Mm -hmm. So it, it, to me, it was, it was an extension. It, it, it was, it was carrying, carrying farther what, what was already there, but just making it more explicit. Now, I've also, I've also, you know, really understand that uh, we can talk about nonviolent activism in the abstract, but what's called for in any given situation, there is, there isn't one way to be that fits the, that fits all situations. You know, we, we, I think it's a continual conversation about what, uh, what it looks like. I, I think I wrote, uh, and I don't remember which place it is, that uh, I quoted uh, a little Palestinian village that for you know 40 years has just survived, just been mm -hmm. working to survive as their as their olive trees are cut down. And so their you know, nonviolent activism is survival. And that that's different than confronting uh, a segregated school or sure. uh, witnessing against capital punishment you know each each of these has got its own its own context its own uh, sense of how to carry out a, a you know how to make a, a visible confrontation of an, of an injustice and i think that's helpful i mean one of the things i've said certainly in our group is to think about nonviolent resistance as a spectrum right and i've used yeah. um uh, Vincent Harding's work, um, as he describes just the struggle of African Americans and there is a river from slavery up to, mm -hmm. you know, emancipation. 
that he describes a whole range of ways that black people are resisting and struggling, right? From little things like breaking tools, right? <laughs> um, and setting the fields on fire to abolitionist work and underground work and stealing away and all that stuff. And so there's just this broad range of stuff. And so what David Walker can do up North is not the same thing that enslaved people can do, you know, in the belly of Alabama or Mississippi. And right. so mm. um, that we've got to reimagine not just this one way of activism that kind of gets put as a standard, but we've got to understand our context and our own unique situations within right. the system. Yeah. I mean, I know you're not asking this, but, uh, but I mean, I'll throw in a point that I, I came to also worry about or respond to. Uh, I think it might even be when I responded to Hans Bersma. If, if it wasn't here, mm. it, was, it was, I responded to Hans Bersma in uh, a book on a, that atonement dialogue book. Cause he says, Oh, then he's contradicting himself because he's talking about nonviolent activism and he's already engaged in violence and look what Jesus did um, with the temple. And uh, he's in Jesus engaged in violence. And I, and I came to understand that the very common assumption is that you have a continuum goes from one end of total non-resistance through you know disciplining children having them stand in the corner to and pretty soon you get to nonviolent activism and then pretty soon there's a step over into a little bit of violence and then more violence and they say oh you're it's all violence and i and i came to understand no that there's really two continua those are not one continuum because right. if they're one you, you do end up defining everything as violence <clears throat> And I and it just didn't make sense. So I start, well, they 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 start at a similar point, but then they go off in uh, in different directions. And and depending on where we're talking about, you've got that whole spectrum that Drew just laid out for for black activism, and you could put a lot of other things on that. But those are not violence, contrary to what people like Hans Bersman would uh, would say. Uh, because for Bersman, he. You know, use that because you you probably run into that argument. Oh, but you guys are just using violence anyway. Yeah. Why not admit it? And and because for Burzma, um, the the only real resistance to evil is the evil of violence. Like that's that's the ultimate claim that's being made. So his yeah, talk yeah. of um, hospitality is not possible unless. Um, you confront evil. What is implied in that is that the only way to confront evil isn't how Jesus did it. Um, there, there are other ways, um, and so you end up dividing the Holy Trinity against different, as if they're different ethical options. Like, are we going to go with the Son today, or does this call for the Father's response? Yeah. Now, I Jesus said, "Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you." And that kind of thing is repeated a couple places by Paul, and it's over in First Peter somewhere. And I come to understand Jesus says that right after he goes through the turn the other cheek, and that's right, and those. Yeah. And I and I kind of decided that love your enemies is just another version of that. Love your enemies doesn't mean oh let's let's go act like we were best friends. It means do something to change the situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that that fits with the with the way Walter Wink understood the uh, those three those three problematic texts. And so, love your enemies isn't 
pie in the sky, an impractical ideal. It's really a way to 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 be to live more peacefully. Yeah, and as Jim Lawson once told me, um, uh, we've been interpreting those texts uh, in the movement long before Walter Wink ever wrote them down on paper. <laughs> oh. Okay. Yeah, I learned it from Walter Wink. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. But I mean, you think about the the spirituality and faith of the Black Church, right? Is that there are these powers at work already? I mean, it's it's almost intuitive, right? Yeah, um, yeah. In terms of just certainly in the Black Church, and I'm sure many other communities, just to be able to um, recognize that there's so much more going on beyond just what we can see and identify. Um, mm. And I think that. But then to have that activism strain and to resist and to also pray with your feet, right? Um, as you yeah. struggle against the powers. Yeah. Denny, um, before we open it up to um, the, the questions from our community, uh, I'm really keen to hear um, why uh, some dialogue partners weren't included. Um, I think in particular, a, a big influence on me has been um, uh, First Nations voices here in Australia, and I know your context in the US is very different, but when it comes to um, Indigenous theologies, um, uh, but I was also interested when it came to um, so much of your book um, is centred around um, the West, um, Anselm, and then Abelard's kind of responses and the Reformation tradition um, that, that follows uh, in response or reaction. Uh, but Eastern Orthodoxy isn't ever engaged. And I guess as part of that, um, uh, the ancient Christian writings of um, what's sometimes framed as the patristics um, wasn't a direct dialogue um, pattern. It, was that simply because you've, you've sought to um, be in conversation with places where people uh, do have their backs against the wall and are seeking to articulate a theology in response to um, oppression? Um, or is it just, yeah, uh, I'll let you answer the question. That's just happenstance of, of what, what I dealt with and where, where I, what I was familiar with out of my seminary background mm. and uh, what was, what was, closest when I when I moved beyond Mennonites and started to uh, you know explore other traditions actually actually I I started to think about I because I I studied Reformation in uh, graduate school I did and so I'm kind of a self partly it's a self-taught theologian and so I you know I did what I you know I had a church history course and we learned about those early fathers and so that's that's what I that's what I build on. Uh, when I came back from Algeria, I did a course in the I don't even remember what it was called at AMBS in the Black Church. Mm. In about that was about 1969, and we read uh, one of the textbooks was James Cone, Black Theology and Black Power. Power, right? Wow. And I read that book, and I had uh, you know I learned a lot when I was abroad. I came back about during Vietnam, I came back mad. I had learned about how we're oppressing Palestinians and I was mad about that. And I read uh, Cohn's book, Black Theology and Black Power and all the way through there and he kept explaining how you had to be black and, and, and was critiquing the white church. And I kept saying, yeah, right, right, I, I get this. I wonder if there's any hope for me. And I got the last page or the last little bit and he explained how 
well, white people that join the struggle can be black. And I, I mean, I, I was relieved, really. And <laughs> so then I put that book on the shelf. And when I finally started to do theology, uh, and, and I got me, I talked about how I had that, that Mennonite world. I had figured it out for the Mennonites. And then I was going to, I'd actually, the men, it, the being Mennonite on this helped me because I was, you know, I knew we were a little bit different from just the mainstream. And so I was wondering, well, do Mennonites have their own way of talking about this stuff? And once I'd figured something out, I just thought, oh, wonder what one of these other groups that isn't quite mainstream. And, and I, oh, I remembered black theology. And I knew hmm. that one name, James Cohen, I got that book down. And that's how I got to black theology. Uh, I don't know where I was going with that, except to say at that point, I read the introduction to the book and he explained in the introduction that, uh, that white people who identified with the struggle could be black. And that's when I realized, wow, I was really ignorant when I read it the first time because I skipped the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's interesting. That, I mean, and I think you know this about me already, um, that what you know, how I got to you and your work, how I even found your work was coming from the other side of it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. From the black church. And but then just getting teased with uh, Anabaptism lights, right? At, at Messiah a little bit, just enough to be intrigued. And then um, when I when I began to go deeper and I'm reading James Cone and I'm wrestling with the life of King and just thinking about these little, you know, nuggets of stuff that I got given around Anabaptism, and so went back to Philly, was getting connected with like black and Latino and uh, Asian Mennonites and Anabaptists there in Philly um, and working on my MDiv and, and wrestling with these two traditions all of a sudden in my head. And so when I started my dissertation, I'm like, which Anabaptists have actually engaged this conversation? I got it. There's got to be someone out there. Right. And I was having trouble. Like, find, I mean, I find like little light, little references here and there. But it was your work with that essay, I what it was called, um, Martyrs, something, mirror, I don't know, but about you engaging Cone. It was an essay. And I was like, who is this guy? And then I start following the trail and find nonviolent atonement and see this conversation unfolding. And then later, you know, you had done, I found other works and, and this kind of unfolding of deeper and deeper conversation is what I found, right? Um, it's just been kind of intriguing to see that. I know that that continued all the way up to you engaging Carter and Jennings and some of their work uh, more recently and, and just the way that you can see race, class and gender um, yeah. and these different intersections shaping your work that that over time, it wasn't just about you drawing on the work to make your own arguments, but it's also had shaped you right in your work. I don't think yeah, that's a no, fair articulation really. of your journey. No, after after I read these these folks, I, you know, I just say it, it, it is not possible to just stand on standard orthodoxy anymore. If you, mm. if you know what, if you know what this, the tradition is, you know what it's done, you have to make an, uh, a, revi a revision of standard orthodoxy. I just, you know, I mean, they really shaped me. Mm. I, I was gonna say, you know, I, this book is, um, this book is big enough. You know, it takes a while to get on top of what I tried to get on top of. I'm, I'm aware of you know, that there is uh, a Native, Native American theologies. There's Muharista. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just didn't have time or energy to just keep going on and on and on. But I, but yeah, it, and it's just really what, what 
was convenient. Oh, that, that's why I was telling that story about black theology. When I started to go into those, you know, black theology was the one that I knew. And I deal with that a while. And then I think I thought, oh, what about feminists? That, they're out there. And so then I started to, you know, somehow I got into that. And, um, and then I went, one year I went to AAR. I don't remember, it was probably, I don't know, about 94. And then I, the first time I look in the program book, and here I see there's there's feminist and then there's womanists, and I and I thought, well, that's really interesting, a synonym. I wonder what that's about. And so I decided I'd just find out. I would go to a womanist section, and I, you know, like I do, I went in there and I walked down in front and sat down in the front row, and and I looked up and here it was a row of women on the program, <laughs> and I looked around. And it was the whole sea of black faces was staring at me. Whoa, that was that was when I realized that womanist was not a synonym for feminist. And I so I, I pursued that one a while. I, I would search out these women at uh, AAR and ask questions and um, to try to develop that understanding. So I mean, I you know I've I've been to some sessions on. Native American theology. I just never took the time to pursue that one as far as I pursued these others. And, it, and it, it's just kind of happenstance because I'd be very happy to, to pursue Native Americans. And, uh, you know, I, I know the, their uh, possible interpretation of the Canaanite invasion where mm -hmm. They are they are the Canaanites that God's people are beating on, and if that's true, you know why should they bother to be Christian? Hmm. Um, people have suggested in the chat, Denny, that maybe that's the third edition. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Denny. Um, we really appreciate you and your witness and your the, just the ongoing work and. The effort to even write a book like Nonviolent Atonements, um, that's not easy. And so we're just grateful for all the energy and time you've put into, into your scholarship and your witness. Well, I'm uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm impressed with all these faces I see of people who actually made the effort to read that book. Thank you. <laughs> and Denny, maybe before we go to questions, would you mention... Um, uh, there's a book you held up uh, earlier that we thought would be great for people. Um, yeah, yeah. It's called God Without Violence. Uh, a The subtitle is A Theology of the God Revealed in Jesus. It is a, and there's a second edition. Be sure and get the second edition. If you're going to get one, be sure and get the second edition. It purports to be a layperson's oriented, a non-specialist version of the heart of what's in the two books, Nonviolent Atonement and Nonviolent God. And I'll, I'll tell you that why, I mean, this is fairly readable. I mean, it, it's supposed to be uh, readable for uh, lay people. Um, I wanted, I, for quite a while, I'd wanted to write that kind of a book that would be accessible to a Sunday school class. And I actually started and trying to summarize and I just got bogged down, just wouldn't get anywhere. And so I went to, I talked to my daughter who's, uh, I don't know, Drew, I don't know if you ever met my daughter, Lisa. She lives here in Madison. She's a grade school teacher. Uh, 
very good with process and stuff. I mean, it's amazing. I used to, when I'd have a problem in my class at Bluffton, I'd call her up on the phone and say, Lisa, you know, I've got this student who's this way. What should I do? And she'd give me something. Yeah, it would work. So I said, Lisa, I'm bogged down with this book. What do I, uh, how, can you help me? She said, sure, dad. Put your, put your notes away. Put your books away. Tell me 10 things that you, tell me your 10 main points that you want to talk about. And she's sitting at the computer and I, and I start listing, well, there's this and there's this and she's typing and we can finally got a list of 10. And then she said, uh, okay, now go back and tell me three points under each of those. So I start in, okay, the first one, let's see, you know, we got this and I, I do this and this. And I went through those. I think there was one, I only found two points. And when it got done, she said, okay, dad, there's your outline. Now, without looking at any books, without looking at any notes, you sit down at your computer and you write a draft using that outline. <laughs> I did. And it, and it came out excessively different than if I had started, like I was trying to summarize one of these books and figure out what to cut out and stuff. So, you know, that this book exists because my daughter told me how to do it. And actually, she wrote the questions there's discussion questions in the back and she she wrote the discussion questions for me so that's great the inverse podcast is proudly supported by you the listener and if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse <laughs>